think this is our fifth Curious Objects Winter Show annual collaboration, and they just keep getting better and better. So I'm very excited to be here. And we're here, of course, at America's Greatest Antique Fair to talk about why people collect, um, or the, the vexatious question for us dealers of why certain people sometimes don't collect. <laughs> and I want to start by just asking you all to drift with me for a moment through memory. Your whole life, you have worked hard to figure out who you are and what your place is in the world. We've all done this. You haven't answered all of your questions. You haven't solved all of your problems. But you've made progress. You've taken one step after another. You've built on your own achievements. You've learned about yourself and about the people that you love. And somehow, you've made meaning and sense out of the jumbled mess that we call experience. Your life is a parade of stories built out of memory. And it's built on the stories of people who came before you, uh, who made your world what it is. And it's not just your ancestors, but it's all the people whose shoulders that we stand on. Their stories have a living memory, physical artifacts of who these people were, what they did, how they lived. And these objects carry the weight and the hopes of those people and in turn of all of us. So if you want to know who you are, <laughs> a small question, you need to do more than just know these stories. You need to feel them. You need to hold them. You need to care for them. And you need to find out what they mean specifically for you so that you can be a part of that story as you carry it on for the next generation. And that, to me, is what collecting means. You might call yourself a collector, you might call yourself an art lover, you might call yourself something entirely different or nothing at all. But in fact, you know, to put it rather grandiosely, but I think accurately, you are a seeker of truth and you're a, a custodian of memory. And so I am absolutely delighted to have this conversation with three truth tellers who each in their own way deliberate over the meaning and power of objects. And all three of these people are inveterate collectors. Uh, Lloyd Zuckerberg is uh, a member of the New York Landmarks Conservancy. Um, he was a deputy project manager for the restoration of Grand Central Terminal. Um, he has a collection which ranges across a wide variety of, of media. Um, Marcy Masterson is an interior designer uh, with a, a, a really sharp connoisseurial eye, and her projects reflect a, a keen awareness of decorative arts history and quality. Um, and Tom Lawler is a, a, well, difficult man to describe, but he is an artist and he's an art publisher uh, who served for many years as the director of visual arts at, at Lincoln Center. Um, I want to start by doing something that I do on every episode of Curious Objects, which is to impose upon my guests uh, a few rapid fire questions. So we're going to dive right in. You're going to get to know them just a little right off the bat. And we'll take them starting with you, Tom, and then Lloyd, and then Marcy. And my first question for you is, what is the first object or artwork that you remember falling in love with? Well, I think uh, a, a box, a wooden box, when I was young, that I bought at an antique shop that had inlay marquetry. And I, 
wanted to know how it was made, so I took it apart and remade it. I was a junior in Paris studying abroad, and I think it was a Monet painting that I had to study and wrote about. I have to say it was a pair of Venetian side chairs. Uh, I was working for my first job working for a company called Rose Cumming, and they were extremely sculptural. One wouldn't sit in them. <laughs> okay, well, um, Tom, we'll go back to you for the next rapid-fire question, which is, I want to know about the most painful mistake that you've made as a collector. I'm sure I've made quite a few. I mean, look at my apartment. Um, but, but, but uh, uh, no, I think, I think the, the, the probably one mistake that I was telling you about earlier today, Ben, is I remember buying a bronze sculpture that I knew wasn't the period that the, the seller was telling me, and for some reason I bought it anyway. And I couldn't live with it, so I gave it away the next day. But, um, but that was kind of a silly thing to do, right? Well, I suppose it made you happy in the moment. How about, how about you, Lloyd? I bought a absurdly expensive Windsor chair uh, without my decorator's advice. And um, I have come to believe that it has a uh, replaced splat, which I didn't know about, which is fine so long as I'd paid a commensurate price, but I didn't. Um, but uh, the chair resides very happily in one of my children's rooms right now, and they love it, so it's all good. Um, I would have to say it was advising a client to buy a Claude Delan chair many years ago. Uh, we were speaking of it earlier, and uh, I, I just wasn't forceful enough. Um, but they ended up buying the land furniture many years later for 10 times the price of what I had earlier advised them to do before he had gained such recognition. That sounds like less your mistake and more someone else's. <laughs> I, I, I should have been more forceful. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Um, Tom, would you describe your collection more as a, a friend or a child or a spouse or a lover? I think my collection is, is a collaborator. I think the objects that I collect uh, inform my creative work. The ancient mirror I'm holding is, is influences the sculpture that I create. So I think most of the objects in my study there are related to either uh, lessons I'm giving at, at the University of Columbia or, or uh, things that I will make. Uh, definitely a friend because I see them sometimes every day, sometimes from time to time. And it's just such fun every time I'm around them, <laughs> uh, which may not always be true with friends, but actually I think <laughs> with good friends it is. So uh, there's nothing illicit about it, so that's why I would avoid the other, the other ones. And child, the discipline involved, there's no discipline with my stuff. You just send it away. I mean, you can't, well, you can do that with your kids, but you really don't want to do that. <laughs> so definitely friend. I would absolutely agree, a friend, that you just enjoy, enjoy every day. Um, okay, your last rapid fire question, who's your collecting role model? Well, I think it started when I was uh, young. I, was, I had a semester in London at the uh, Central School of Design when I was young, 
and it was located right across Lincoln's infields from the John Soane house. So I would go over there during lunch break and study it, and I think the, the color in, in the room here is, is influenced by that. I, I've spent many hours in that house. Uh, I grew up in a house with stuff my parents collected. My father's a serious collector of certain things, but I think my collecting role model is my mother-in-law, who is um, 92, and she'll still buy. If she'd get out of the house more, she'd still buy. And the reason I think of her as my collecting role model is she loves everything that she owns. She can tell you the story of where she bought everything she owns, which is something that I could probably do too. And she's, she loves the hunt um, to find something. And if you bring her stuff to show her, she lives in England, and I'll bring stuff to show her, she's always enthusiastic about it and says, oh, that's, oh, gosh, beautiful. And how much did, oh, what a great price. I mean, all the, all the buzzwords you're looking to hear from someone who appreciates your collecting. I think that's a very, very tough question. Um, I think I would have to say Yves Saint Laurent, who I felt had such an incredible mixture of styles and period, and he just made it all work together magically. So I want to try to understand a little bit about the psychology of collecting. And to do that, we're going to take a look at the origins of your own collecting journeys. So I want to ask of each of you, if you can remember the moment or maybe the period in your life when you first felt inspired um, to love decorative arts. Uh, and again, I'll start with you, Tom. I think uh, I grew up in Detroit, and I think going to the Art Institute and looking at period rooms was very interesting for me. What, were, what was uh, displayed in the room, the objects, and um, and and... That was the inspiration, I think. How about you, Lloyd? There's really, I don't think there's really a moment. I think it was a gradual thing. I was thinking when I was a child, I had a junk drawer. And that was the drawer I never cleaned up, but it was where I kept all the stuff I didn't quite know what to do with or what to place, and nobody else would appreciate it but me. And I remember when we moved, it was quite dramatic. I didn't know what to do with my junk drawer. Um, I think... Uh, it just sort of came to me. I think if there was a moment, I married my wife, Charlotte, and we both happened to like some of the same things. So that was really quite useful. Um, and I'll be talking about the glass later. You know, we would take pilgrimages to places to look at glass and where glass was made, American glass was made. So maybe that would be the moment, but I really think it's a gradual absorption. And Marcy, what about you? I think it started very, very early on in that I just liked pretty things. And um, my mother had a lot of china and porcelain, and I think loved to set a table. And I think it really started there very early. So none of the three of you are the sort of collector to stash them, something away in the safe and leave it there to collect dust and appreciate over time. Um, you're much more of the sort to take an object out and enjoy it and experience it. And I'd like to know a little more about the context in which you actually use and enjoy the objects that you've 
acquired. And maybe, maybe Marcy, I could start with you on that one. I use everything. I mean, I think I use everything that I acquire every day. Um, I was at dinner, at dinner last night, and we were discussing um, a sale at Sotheby's uh, that's going on right now, and were people collecting silver or china or glassware, and how so many people don't use beautiful things every night. They use utilitarian, and they they keep these things for God knows what. And what's the point of owning them if you're not enjoying them every day? Sounds like you agree yeah, with that. Yeah, I completely agree. We always, my wife and I always look at each other and think about how could we use this, and it's out. I've even started to think about taking my silver utensils out of those um, lovely bags that I get from people like S.J. Shrubsole so that when I open the drawer looking for something, I see what I have and I can pick from it because I never know what's in the bags so well. But, um, you know, we make a joke, the jewelry dealers, the, the line that the jewelry dealers always use is, and you can wear it with jeans. They love to tell you whatever fancy piece of jewelry you're looking at. And it looks great with jeans because everyone today wears jeans all the time. And Charlotte and I always laugh about that. But it's, it's kind of a metaphor for being that kind of collector. If you don't use and enjoy your things, then they're not living. And the goal is to keep making memory with these objects. And you do that by enjoying them. I often think about particularly with old jewelry. Imagine a piece of Georgian jewelry, where that jewelry has been. Think of the parties that jewelry has been to. You think you've got a life? That piece of jewelry has had a much better life than you've probably <laughs> had. And Tom, you, you live intimately with a very large collection of objects that you've put together over the decades. And uh, you, you have a very intimate personal relationship with many of those things. How do you enjoy or experience those? I think it relates to my interest in history. Um, uh, an advantage to living in Detroit was getting Canadian television, which was all BBC documentaries. So early on, as a child, uh, I was always watching documentaries, much to the dismay of my siblings. Um, <laughs> but I think, I think my collection is alive in the, in the way that it informs me of the period. I mean, I, I'm, I'm holding a 2,500-year-old object. Where have you been for 2,500 years? And, and it's, it, for me, the objects, the books, the prints, the drawings have, uh, have, have, have deep significance in what they're telling me about the period. I mean, that's, I got interested in Etruscan and Roman mirrors partially by... Uh, spending time at the American Academy in Rome and going to look at these things, but also uh, I was given a gift of a mirror. So, and, and have you found communities or built communities of appreciation that you can share this enthusiasm and excitement with? Yeah, there there are people that are very interested in in ancient objects and and where they came from, and even even we we can even tell where what part of the ancient world, certain uh, similar objects come from. So it, it's, it's, it, says, it says something about that period, but also about the spreading of ideas across the vast area with the type of communication that existed 2,000 years ago. 
And Lloyd and Marcy, you both mentioned enjoying your collections in the company of others, family, friends. Um, do you, are, are those your sort of primary communities in which you share the joy of collecting? Or do you also have um, you know, specialized collector uh, groups, organizations, individuals that you like to talk about with, about talk with about these sorts of objects. Where do you get the sort of communal experience and satisfaction of collecting? I would say at the antique show, you know, at, at trade events. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say my friends because they wouldn't they wouldn't have the same some friends they wouldn't have the same. Um, um, interest, but you can really delve into things with with other dealers or or experts at auction. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I was thinking about that as you were asking the question, and Tom was speaking. My wife and I were members of the American Cut Glass Association for many years, and the highlight was when we got the newsletters. And these are people from all over the country, and you know, an eclectic bunch, and they spent a lot of time talking about. Uh, the, what they were serving for dinner at their gatherings in these restaurants and outside of you know Midwestern cities, it was always quite amusing. And we went to a couple of uh, conventions, glass conventions in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. They had a really big one. But I agree with Marcy. I actually find solace in the dealers um, because, I mean, the dealers are always there. They sort of suffer from the same bug to a certain extent, except. You know, they sell more things than, than I do. Um, but I think there's just not a lot of people who really care these days uh, or notice sometimes. So that can be a little dispiriting. So this a show like this, oh, it's like a grand week. Yeah, uh, present company accepted, of course. <laughs> Many en enthusiasts in the room with us right now and, of course, across the Park Avenue Armory uh, over the course of the, the 10 days of this show. Um, I, I'm very excited. One of the things I've been really looking forward to about this conversation is the opportunity to talk about a few specific pieces that have meant a lot to all four of us over the years. And so we have each brought a... Uh, shall we call it a curious object, uh, from our own collections uh, to, to talk about and to talk about our personal relationship with that object over time. So maybe I'll just um, start by saying a few words about a teapot, which if you're a listener to the Curious Objects podcast, you've heard me mention this before. It's a piece that I found in a, a, a little auction some years ago that um, I, I took a risk on by buying without having seen it in person. I had only seen pictures. And it's a silver teapot from about 1900 made in Providence, Rhode Island. It's a very unusual piece. It's a, sort of a grab bag of aesthetic ideas with elements that are strongly Rococo and others that are neoclassical. And then the overall form looks almost like a, a sort of Art Deco piece or even a Christopher Dresser style of design. And it's the sort of thing that, that you know, on another day might have come together and looked completely absurd. And actually, maybe some of you think it does look completely absurd, but to me, it really hangs together and, and it becomes this charming, uh, unique object full of uh, personal character. And I, I bought this to use it as a teapot, and I do. I, I drink my tea from it very frequently. Um, I take pleasure in doing so, and each time I brew a pot of tea in this teapot, 
I deepen my relationship with it. Um, it has become a, uh, I think I have to describe it also as a friend because it has taken that role in my life. If I'm having a, 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 a dour day and I get home in the evening and I'm feeling down and I'm not sure what to do, well, I can brew a pot of tea and in a funny way, because of this pot, that ritual has become deeply comforting to me and can really turn my whole attitude around in just a few minutes. So I've I found objects like this can fill a, a really strong, important psychological role in my life. And the wonderful thing about them is the longer you have them, the deeper and richer that experience becomes. Um, so I will move on from my little teapot and perhaps Lloyd, I'll ask you to tell us about the dish that you have uh, in front of us right now. Sure. So this is, uh, I guess I'd call it a center bowl. It sits in the middle of my dining room table at home, our dining room table. And it was made probably the first quarter of the 20th century by Hawks, which was one of the finest makers of American glass in the history of the country. Uh, Thomas Hawks came here from Ireland during the Civil War. He was from a fairly well-off family. He went to work for Hoare and Daly, H-O-A-R-E. Um, Hoare became one of the best glassmakers in the United States as well. And then he left in 1880 and set up his own shop. By 1882, he'd already gotten a patent for what became known as the Russian pattern and cut glass. And in 1889, he won the grand prize at the Paris Exposition. Now, this was a huge event because uh, no uh, Americans considered uh, crystal glass a European thing, and the best glass was European. This was the first time an American had won the grand prize in Paris, and it was a, a monumental event. Hawks sold two sets of crystal to the White House, the first set to President Grover Cleveland, and the second set to... Uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, which I found intriguing in 1936, a woman known for caring for a lot of poor people, bought a set of Hawks crystal for the White House. Well, maybe they needed a set, who knows. Um, and when I was young, uh, we used to have celebratory family meals with Hawks crystal uh, that my mom had, which I found out she had inherited from her mother. And what I also found out, which was kind of interesting, is that my grandmother had a set of 18. She had service for 18. She had water goblets, wine goblets, and, and cordials, and champagnes, and uh, uh, butter plates. And when my mother got married, my grandmother's friends gave her a set of salad plates to go along in the same pattern, the primrose pattern. So my mom had this huge set of hawks that she had really started with my grandmother. And... Um, and then my mom gave it all to us. Unfortunately, we have no place to put it. It's still in the boxes, but one day it's coming out. <laughs> that made my wife and I very interested in hawks. And uh, we, we went up early in our marriage to Kennebunk to visit friends in Kennebunkport. And there were a lot of antique shops up there that had hawks. And what I realized is, is that wherever there were really rich people at the turn of the century, there was a lot of hawks because that's what you wanted to have. If you wanted to impress your friends, you wanted to have hawks. Um, so we bought a lot of hawks. 
This bowl, which is in the iris pattern, which was one of Hawks's most elaborate patterns with a silver mount, I bought from a very, very good dealer uh, called eBay. And um, <laughs> <laughs> it was really hard for, for me to find something on eBay. Actually, it wasn't. There was a lot of it. I bought these. Um, these are oil and, vi and vinegar um, things that they made. And in fact, they patented this. Hawks patented this. And they have the line here for the vinegar and the line here for the oil. That's quite a ratio by today's standards. Um, and you would shake it up. They made similar ones for ketchup and mayonnaise. I didn't bring those. They made over 330 patterns of glass. So the Hawks Crystal Company, uh, the Hawks Glass Company, survived primarily in Corning, New York. Um, they they co-founded Stuben to create blanks. They didn't actually make glass. They cut glass, uh, engraved glass, and cut cut crystal. I like the engraved. My wife and I. And um, they closed in 1962. So my mom was married in 1959. She probably got some of the last batch mm. of the uh, of the Hawks crystal. Mm. And uh, it's just to me, it's 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 a lovely thing because a it's usable, it's beautiful to me at least, um, and it was affordable at a time in my life where I couldn't afford to buy really expensive things. How do you use it today? Well. You know, this sits in the center of the dining table. Our dining table is in the middle of our house. We walk through that room all the time. We see it all the time. The only time it ever has anything in it is in the fall when I put gourds in it. <laughs> and otherwise, it's the, unless the table is in, extended, it's a little hard because it's big. And I always hear people, you know, bang into it like that, and it scares <laughs> the heck out of me. Um, so I usually take it off the table <laughs> during a meal when the table is in that state. But if you came to my house for dinner and we ate, you know, it wasn't takeaway in the kitchen, um, you, would, you would eat from, you would drink with very nice glass. You might have dessert on Hawk's plates. Um, uh, there'd be glass all around. We might serve food on some of the Hawk's plates and things like that. So... It's there, and we, we just love using it. I've never made oil and vinegar in these, by the way, because they're a pain to clean out afterwards. Can you just ring that bowl one more time? Very nice. It's a great sound, isn't it? I'm told it's the shape, the quality of the glass and the shape that does that. Marcy, I want to ask you about the curious object, which unfortunately you weren't able to bring because of its significant size. Um, but it's, it's a chair that has a special place in your life. Could you tell us about this? Uh, actually, this is a set of chairs that I opted not to bring. Um, uh, I fell in love with this chair, chair set of chairs, uh, when they were with an Italian dealer. They're Italian 19th century chairs. And from uh, the Piedmont section of uh, Italy. And... I had seen them at a very prestigious uh, antique dealer's shop, and uh, I couldn't stop thinking of them because I thought that they were such an, such an odd shape. And they stayed in my mind, stayed in my mind. Then they showed up at Christie's, and I thought, oh my gosh, there are those chairs again. I can't believe it. I really, really, I just wanted to buy them so badly. And tried, tried to, I wanted to, I thought, I, I can't let this, this go by again, but I, they did. 
They went. <laughs> and then a dear friend of mine who's in the show uh, right now called Cove Landing, Cove Landing had them. And I thought, third time lucky, you cannot, you cannot let this slip through your fingers. So I bit the bullet and I bought them. And I have to say, they're, uh, they're in my entrance hall. And I absolutely, I, I still love them. And I just think the form can be viewed as quite modern, but they're actually antique. And they have this lovely fruit wood, which I think is probably lemon wood, um, if I had to guess, but I don't know. And, um, and the seat is, is a very pronounced seat as well. It, it's uh, concave, the front of it. So um, that is my curious object that I live with and enjoy every day. So the, the seat back is this very odd sort of T shape. What does it feel like to sit in one of these? Are they comfortable? You perch. <laughs> <laughs> you, do, you really don't sit back. No, they're really sculptural. No, I don't. They get a lot of coats on them and purses and things like that. <laughs> okay. No, I don't. I don't Sit in them so you actually treat them, it sounds like you treat them as much uh, as sculptures as, as you sculpture. do as, as I do. chairs. I do. Yeah. I do sit in them, but I mean, uh, they're more comfortable chairs to, to sit in. Yeah. But the support, uh, the back is just that, that T-shape, so I, I don't want to take any chances on them. Um, last but not least, uh, we have our oldest curious object for today. Uh, and Tom, you're holding it in your hand right now. Could you tell us about this piece? Uh, yes, it's, um, it's an Etruscan hand mirror. And um, I, I, I like ancient objects that were functional and used. And, and some of the objects had a very different meaning in their day. Hand mirrors were intended to be owned by women only. And um, they were... Uh, uh, the reflection, uh, it was a very mysterious reflection. If you imagine this object would have been as shiny as Ben's teapot. It would have been highly polished bronze. And the reflection on the reverse would have been a very mysterious reflection where the, um, the reflection would have an odd sort of foreshortened uh, look. Um, but I, I, I like objects that feel to me like they're imbued with generations of owners where you know where someone was looking into this 2000 years ago and i fantasize that somehow their face is here somewhere um as a sculptor uh i i'm i do interpretations of these objects and so I, i've created along with the sculptor who's here ricardo arango uh, who is a welder large versions of ancient mirrors and they're, they're at um, Maison Gerard right now. Um, and they have the same reflective quality of, as an ancient mirror. If you look at the reverse of them, but there's something that this, some of the mirrors that I have are silvered bronze, so you are, and some of them are silver. Now, silver in antiquity was uh, pure silver. It wasn't an alloy, so, I mean, you could actually fold the mirror in half if you're not careful. But... Um, but some of the mirrors still have reflection. And for me, that is, I mean, I look at this and see my own reflection and think how many other faces are captured in this mirror over 2,000 years. 
And, and like I said, a mirror like this that would have been, uh, again, Etruscan, so it only would have been in the Italian uh, peninsula, but some of the Roman mirrors, you, you would find a mirror made in, in the Middle East that would be the same as a mirror made in Britain. So they've had this, this technology just traveled, traveled uh, vast, vast areas. And, and, you know, priests would dip a mirror into the water in the, in the ancient world and look at your reflection and predict your health. Uh, men were not supposed to look at their reflection. It was, it was considered vain. And I think it was Pliny that said that women should use mirrors to determine their future in that if you're not attractive, you really have to build up your other attributes. So, so I mean, it's, but, but it really, I mean, so the mirrors were not, and if you think of it 2,000 years ago, very few people saw their reflection. Only aristocratic women would have owned mirrors, and the scene on the on the uh, non-reflective side would have been a mythological story or some kind of, of um, lesson-informing story about virtue or something like that. And Tom, as you mentioned, well, you're, you're an artist. You draw inspiration from antiquity, but also from a, a broad range of design sources ranging from you know, Etruscan hand mirrors up through 20th century design. Um, is is there and and you collect all of these objects as well and and you know your collection is full of such an eclectic array of objects it can seem almost bewildering but I wonder if if there's a common thread there, there is through. I think a common thread you could look at I I have objects designed in the 20th century that you could say are inspired by by this and I'm interested in the interpretation of classicism throughout the centuries so. There's a sculptor that has uh, a sculpture at Lincoln Center, Dimitri Hatzi's Three Graces, and I have a, a maquette for that sculpture. And again, it's an interpretation of classicism by a modern sculptor. The objects also that I'm very interested in are objects that are designed with a, an aesthetic way beyond their day. Objects designed maybe in the late 18th century that look like they could be from the 1960s. You know, a, a tea urn that is a sphere, a severe sphere that is, that, you know, that you really can't tell what the period would be. So I, I'm interested in, in advanced ideas from artists and designers that, are, that, that think outside the aesthetic of their time. And Marcy, as a designer, you, of course, you work with clients who are looking to you for guidance as to their, their taste, the looks of their dwelling places. Um, but at the same time, you know, they have their own taste and you have to work within their preferences and, and their desires. I wonder how it is that you help these people to find their way to objects that they can love. Well, I try and find things that are going to working with the scheme of the interior and, and the architecture of, of, of space. And um, I try and find, find a common ground, a, th a theme, a period. And then we just I review as much as you know, I, can, I can possibly find. And the more they see, the more they, they refine their, their taste and the more they, they realize what they, they like or they don't like. 
And you've said to me that uh, it feels to you like sometimes your own taste becomes a guiding post for your clients. Yes. Um, because, uh, I mean, on, on some level I'm, I'm collecting, I'm collecting it for them. So on some very strange level, I feel like I have collected it. <laughs> it, it. It's, it's, it's my treasured little piece and I can go back and, and visit it. But, um, in, in general, they, you know, they, they fall in love with it as well. Can I, can I add to that? Please. Because Marcy has been our decorator for many years. And what Marcy did in the beginning was to recommend that Charlotte and I go out and see the best of the best to help train our eye so we'd know what great things were supposed to look like. And we kind of took to that. The first dealer um, my wife took me to after having gone with Marcy was uh, a furniture dealer who no longer has a shop named Jeremy. And um, went downstairs with Michael Hill, who was the, um, one of the two brothers who owned Jeremy. And within about five minutes, I was on the floor and he was explaining to me how, why this little table that my wife liked was such a great table. To, and to clarify, you were on the floor to look under the table. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> we were not wrestling over the table. <laughs> that price is too high. Um, and uh, we ended up buying the table. I remember we called you from, we were walking on the street, and Marcy was shocked because Jeremy, she didn't think we'd actually buy anything there. We just thought we wanted to look and see, but this was actually a really great table. We still have it today, and it just lifts, you know, everything else in the room. And, but by Marcy helping us, introducing us to people who help train our eye, and by, I mean, even today, pointing things out, it's, that's really fun. You know, that's community, too. And, and, and it's sort of transference from you know, the dealer to the decorator and back again. But it, it all goes back and forth, I think, too. Because you get to a certain point um, where you can talk to the dealer about something. You might see something on a piece of furniture, and a good dealer is going to be excited that you found something, not upset. At least they don't show that they're upset. Um, it happened in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the building here about an hour ago with a friend of mine. And he said, you have a very good eye. That wasn't to me. It was to my friend. <laughs> Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Could you just say a few more words about your relationship with dealers? Because Lloyd, you, you've developed a, a very keen eye of your own through uh, dedicated study, through the accumulation of a library, through attending fairs like this one over the years and looking at numerous objects. Um, but at the same time, you still personally rely very heavily on dealers, on their guidance, on their connoisseurship. Um, why is that? How do you, how would you describe your relationship with the dealer community? Look, I think that it is because of the efforts of the dealers 
that you can one can come to a fair like this and just be in awe of everything you see around you. I think anyone who's serious about collecting, I mean, honestly, you don't have to be serious. You could buy one thing. If you don't value the dealers, you're making a huge mistake. Now, a fair like this where dealers are vetted, there's a community of dealers, they're all invited to participate, typically by other dealers, so I understand it. Um, you know, people are generally reputable. There was a panel in here yesterday and someone said, you need to find a trustworthy dealer. And I said, well, what are the markers of a trustworthy dealer? I kind of know the answer, but part of it is fairs like this, you can, uh, you know that people are carefully considered before they bring their, before they come in and their things are vetted individually by a team of people, many of whom are not dealers. They're outside experts who don't actually buy or sell anything themselves. I have an expression. I always want to get a, pay a good price for something, but I want the dealer to be happy to see me coming down the aisle. I don't want the dealer to say, oh. Which we are, Lloyd. Okay, good. Thank you. Um, you know, there are people who talk about and take pride in kind of, you know, really getting a, getting a you know, fabulous deal on something. And that's great. Everyone loves to get a good deal on something. The better deal you get from a dealer, the more you have to spend next time around. Um, but all that being said, dealers are living this every day. And... They're, doing, they're, they're making so many judgments in the course of their workday. Who might buy something or, or how does this fit into something else I may have in the shop or something that I haven't had in the shop or I really love this, but it's not my period, so how do I understand and explain to people why I have this? That just happened on the, at a jewelry dealer about another, about an hour ago with something. Um, I think you, you ignore and diminish the dealers at your own peril. I think that uh, these people are killing themselves to curate these wonderful objects. And, and I really respect and admire how hard the dealers work to do that. You know, this morning I was researching, and yesterday I was doing some research on hawks to sort of freshen my memory. So I was reading some of these books that I brought with me, and you're welcome to look at them afterwards. And I was thinking, gosh, that's what a dealer has to do with every single object they bring into this fair. Because the vetting committee wants to understand provenance, history, how do you know it is what they say it is, which is something I learned from Michael Hill. Michael Hill said what you're really paying the dealer for is so that you can be sure it is what I'm saying it is. I also think it's interesting with the auction houses, if I may, just for a moment, because the commission rates have gotten ginormous, and I don't feel I have nearly as much recourse with an auction house as I do with a dealer. And I'm not, I'm not um, being trying to speak negatively about the auction houses. I just think it's a different kind of transaction. And people who sometimes buy at auction and think, oh, they got a deal on something, well, there's no deals anymore, really. It's so transparent, the marketplace. Everyone knows everything. I go to dealers about things in the auctions and say, what do you think? And they'll help me. And they'll help me even if they don't have a nickel to get out of it. Um, now, I, I, just, I just think you really got to look hard and trust and find dealers you can trust and admire and, and be respectful of the effort they're putting in and not um, belittle their efforts because... They, 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 make, they make these fairs so exciting.
I just want to stipulate that I didn't pay Lloyd anything for those remarks, but he couldn't have done better if I had. Um, I, I want to open the conversation up to, to all of you and just pose the question, what do you think people who aren't collecting things, who aren't purchasing things, who, who um, haven't yet found their way into a, a type of object or a theme or a material or they, they haven't worked their way into their own identity as a collector, what are they missing out on? And I'll let whoever grabs the microphone first to answer that. For me, it'd be hard to imagine because I have always collected things. I mean, I think I have a collection of about 500 medallions, but it started because I was gardening with my uncle in England in Cornwall when I was a teenager and found a little silver medallion that said 1760 on it. And I was, I said, Boy, there's nothing this old in Detroit. And so, and so I, I kept that. I still have it somewhere. And, and that started me. And I want to find more of these things. And I, I think, so I don't know. That's, that's not addressing your question properly. But I, I, it's hard to imagine not wanting to have things. Although, I, you know, I, I bring objects like this into my classroom at Columbia. And my students want to hear me talk about it. And they take a video of me talking about it. And then I say, wouldn't you like to own this? And they look confused. Like, why would I want to own Why? I just took a video of you. I, don't, I said, but if you owned it and it woke up at 2 o'clock in the morning, you could actually touch it. And you could touch it whenever you want. You could even carry it with you. But they, so that's an interesting to me. So it's, it's, it's hard to imagine not, I, I, the, this object is part, I'm the, I'm the caretaker in my lifetime, then it goes somewhere else, right? But uh, it's hard to imagine not having things that, that have meaning to you, right? So. Anything to add, Marcy? Or? Well, I think uh, for me, and I, I, I think once you know, my clients catch the bug, it, it's the thrill of the hunt. I mean, when they find something, they, you know, really just get ecstatic. And, um, I mean, it, it, it's really interesting. It's fun, you know, to, to research where it's been in the history of it and, um, and then to live with it. And, and it isn't necessarily um, at the price level of, of, of an antique show. I mean, one can collect, collect anything. I mean, what, what an interesting uh, source of entertainment that is exactly the opposite of, of virtual. It's the most concrete, uh, sort of physically gratifying pursuit that, uh, that, that I could imagine. I agree. Uh, my wife and I have a house in England, and there's a car boot sale. Everyone know what a car boot sale is? It's basically like a a junk sale where you open up the trunk of your car and show your wares. And it happens, it's called the Friday Street Market, but it happens on Sundays, which is very English and very confusing <laughs> to me. But that's because the road it's on is called Friday Street. Anyway, it's, <laughs> isn't that, that's typically English, right? It's designed to confuse because, you know, we won the war, so they're still annoyed. So anyway, <laughs> I guess. So 
I, I put it in my calendar when I'm there. For every Sunday, it goes from 6 till whenever. And, of course, the best stuff is from 6 to 7. And I always think I'm going to get there early, and I kind of never do it. And you can get anything from, like, a secondhand stepladder to a treasure, if you're lucky. Um, that thrill of the hunt is something... I, I, I mean, there are people in my life who wouldn't in a million years bother going with me to the Friday street market, and I'm not presumptuous enough to say, yeah, my sister just raised her hand, she's one of them. We're of the same mother and father. <laughs> <laughs> and she, what is she missing out on? You know what? Probably nothing, because she has her own passions. Um, that's kind of why it's fun for me to hang out with my mother-in-law because she'll get excited about all this stuff that I pick up here and there. But I tell you who I do feel sorry for. I don't feel sorry for people who don't collect. I feel sorry for people whose houses are filled with, you know, stuff that their decorators picked out for them that they just said, just make it done, just do it. And they don't know anything about anything in there. And they probably spent a lot of money which is fair enough, that's good for the economy and people are entitled to make a living. And it's not that they're bad people in any way, but, um, you know... You don't sound so sure about that. Okay, <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> but, you know, you said you're a steward of that Etruscan mirror. That's how I feel about the things that I own. I'm taking care of these for someone else. Um, and, uh, you know, I always, I always want to like bring criminal charges against dealers who strip and polish a great piece of patented English furniture of 300 years of history. Um, I, I just think that that's something immoral about doing that. Um, Sounds like a strong campaign platform. <laughs> no, I won't be running on that. Uh, we're, we're coming toward the end here, and I, I have two final questions for each of you, which is, first of all, what would be your, your unlimited budget absolute fantasy acquisition? I invite the audience to ponder this question for yourselves as well. That Monet I studied in Paris, La Seine Près de Giverny, was part of a series. Or, or a Van Gogh boats in the, the museum in Amsterdam, but probably that Monet. I'd trade all the modern art in the world for that Monet. That wouldn't that's be a very, very good, good financial trade, but... No, but it's, <laughs> that's another thing we didn't touch on. You know, never buy something for investment, in my opinion. Just buy it because you love uh, it. I think, I, I mean, you're, you're reminding me, I think the, if I could buy The Death of Marat by David, I often take baths and read in the bath, read art journals, things like this, and think that painting would be nice in my possession. But, so if I could get that, right? And Marcy? I have to say, I'm, I'm, I'm going to steal Lloyd's answer. Uh, I think the water lilies at the Met would be very nice in my possession. <laughs> it would greatly enhance my living room. You have just the perfect wall for it, I'm sure. Perfect. Oh, oh, oh perfect. <laughs> and finally, uh, I think you've all had a, a chance to walk around the fair, some of you quite a bit. And I wonder what object you think visitors should be sure not to miss on the show floor? That's a, that's a rather easy question for me. Something truly, truly unique and outstanding, and I have to say, it is a Shrub Soul. 
Uh -huh. And I'm I'm not saying this to be patronizing. It, the Ipern, the chamoiserie Ipern that they have is truly, truly outstanding, and it is the it, it's the kind of thing that I could stare at for hours on end and continue to find a detail that I had not seen previously. Well. It's a shrub shrub's hole. Booth A4. There's <laughs> silver dealers. It's uh, you Marcy, you're welcome to spend as many hours on our booth looking at that as you'd like. <laughs> there is I, I have to say there's there some stellar furniture here, I must say, but that Epern really was is absolutely extraordinary. And I understand it's it hasn't sold yet. Well, uh, not as of recording, but for those who are listening on the podcast, who knows? Anything is possible. It was uh, featured in the New York Times, and it, it certainly gotten a lot of attention at the fair. This is this is really tough. Um, so I'm glad I didn't go first. I'll, I'll I'll agree with what Marcy said, but you know, I also think Simon Phillips has a pair of. Um, Hall chairs, which are pretty exceptional, with like a shell base. Uh, there's a f gallery Layage dealer I don't know has a green Vert Eglomise mirror from Louis the Fourteenth period. Gorgeous thing. Um, Robert Young, you know, he's sold a lot of things, but there's a dining table in the middle of the booth which I hadn't paid any attention to until this trip today. It's unbelievable. Um, Wartsky's jewelry, uh, I, I don't know. It's, it's a really tough question to answer. My friend said, walk me around the highlights. We got halfway through. There's so many highlights. And the beauty of this fair is that if you come back again and again and just walk into a booth, Jill Newhouse has a couple pictures on the wall which are extraordinary, and you just say, tell me about this, the dealers, they're just delighted to talk to you about it and tell you about their, their things. Um, all of them I found, and that's really you know a great gift. So there's a, there's a lot. And Tom, I'm I'm going to save you the trouble of pitching your own pieces, <laughs> Maison Girard, Ed, in C seven. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I'm very attracted to maps, and there's a dealer in old maps, and maps like ancient objects really reveal the values of the time. Um, I have a map in my, in my uh, bedroom that's a panorama of Rome from 1490, and the Pantheon is larger than the Colosseum. So it's, it's or my, not the Pantheon, St. Peter's is larger than the Colosseum. So that's telling you what angle they want you to follow, right? <laughs> the Christian world is the world there. But uh, what I love about of course, your booth, uh, Ben, is the provenance of these objects. I mean, not only can you acquire an incredible silver object, but they have an incredible history, right? I mean, to me, because objects relate to their historic significance, that to me is fascinating. So I, I guess, I mean, there's so many, so many uh, exhibitors that have compelling things. Well, I just want to echo what you said, Lloyd, and just say that you know the the great opportunity of walking around a fair like like the winter show is 
it has everything you'd like to get out of the world's greatest museums in terms of the quality and range of the material. And then some of the world's greatest experts in this material are standing in every single booth, just waiting for you to ask a question, just hoping to have the opportunity to share their enthusiasm about these pieces with you. And that's something you, you know, the vast majority of us, of us never have the opportunity to experience that at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. But for the price of admission, you can come in here to the Winter Show and have exactly that experience. It's incredible to me, even as a dealer, it's, um, it's something that I do my best to take advantage of. And, and I hope you all will too, if, if you haven't already. But I just want to say thank you so much for coming. And thank you, of course, to to the three of you, uh, Lloyd Zuckerberg, Marcy Masterson, and Tom Lawler. Uh, this has been a great pleasure for me. Thank you to The Winter Show for having us and for having Curious Objects once more. Um, if we have a few minutes, perhaps we could take some questions from the audience. A question about space. Other than buying a larger house or apartment every year or two as we acquire more things, how do you approach space as your collection grows? Tom has a very interesting answer to that question. <laughs> uh, well, my, my relationship with space, fortunately I'm short. And so, so uh, I, and I, I, my apartment has very high ceilings, so you just keep layering things. How uh, many square feet is your apartment? 500 square feet. Yeah, wow. With, I think there are 6,000 books in that apartment. I don't know. But, um, and, and of course, a lot of these mirrors. Um, I, but space, well, fortunately, I don't have to live all the time there. So, but. Can I just say, find, I have someone in New York I sell through, and I have someone in England I sell through. So don't be afraid to let go. You know the Marie Kondo approach, hold it. If it gives you pleasure, keep it. If it doesn't, let it go. And if you need to give it to the thrift shop, give it to the thrift shop. Just move it along. Makes room for more stuff. I need your help. I need your help. <laughs> I'll come over, free of charge. We're buddies now. I, 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 I have a deep relationship with all these objects. And you can't let them go. Yeah, I can't. Then, you, but... you know, you're stuck. Okay. Or happy. <laughs> Uh, any more questions? My question has kind of two parts to it. Um, and the first part is, if you have children, are they even remotely interested in what you do as collectors? And the second part is, what's the destiny of your collections? Well, I have three children. Only one of them expressed interest regularly coming to the antique show. Um, the other two were not that interested. Uh, uh, he actually came to the show last week and started talking to one of the great dealers, Blairman, about something on his stand. And Blairman had no idea who he was, but I found him 10 minutes later and there he was reading a book on Christopher Dresser. So, you know, you plant seeds, you never know what happens. Um, some of my kids have said, I want that already, they've told me, which is fine. I don't have a problem with that. And I think, you know, as far as the value of things sometimes, I kind of figure if, you know, when I'm dead, my kids sell that for half of what I paid for it, what do I care? It gave me pleasure. I didn't buy it 
to make my kids rich necessarily. Maybe they would have wished I had. I think that's a very hard thing to predict, and I think you do your children a favor by either selling off a lot of things as you get older in years. My mother-in-law's done a lot of that. Because uh, you, know, you give them the money, they can do what they want, or you give them a template for what to do with these things. These things should go to that dealer. And that's kind of how I've thought about it a little bit. I've tried to catalog everything in a, in a software program called Collectify, which, I don't know, it's supposed to be a great software program, but I can't get them to help me on their help desk anymore, so I'm looking for a new one. One out of three ain't bad, Lloyd. Well, the others, the, the interesting, the, uh, the second one just moved to a new apartment, and she was drawn to some of the stuff that she grew up with. Um, you know, you never know when it's going to happen, and, it, you, you know, my mother wouldn't have predicted when I was a kid that I would cherish her Hawks Crystal collection one day, or, or stuff. It really wasn't a collection. It was stuff that she used. And, and even the one who would get so angry when we took him to a museum. He would sit outside, I'm not going in, this is a, we took him to Graceland, and he was sitting down on the bench, he refused to go in, and I said, Toby, why won't you come in? He said, you lied to me, this is a museum. <laughs> but even he now, he goes, he goes antiquing at these car boot sales when he takes his friends to England. He takes them to the same silly shops that I go to. So, who knows? God bless them. I give I, I give things to uh, like charity auctions and things. I, I will, you know, and and through the business that I have of publishing uh, small editions of sculptural works by well-known artists, I have developed relationships with university uh, art galleries and museums, and so I, I give away a fair amount of art and and some of the objects that I have. I have a very interesting object. During COVID, when everything was closed, I couldn't sit still, so I drove around. You could park anywhere in the city, and I would drive in front of shops and get the cell number of the person posting in the window and say, I really like that piece in your window. He said, well, we're closed. We can't do business. I said, can we do it in a medieval way? Bring the object, leave it on the curb, and I'll bring my car and put, put the top down, just put it in the back seat. And so we did, I, I found some interesting things uh, uh, that way too. So you could park anywhere then, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think one thing that's interesting is kind of the ebbs and flows of the value of these objects over time. And so I would say today, are there anything, any eras or periods that you think have extreme value but are undervalued in the current market? Yes. I think English furniture is very undervalued at the moment. And I think French furniture probably probably is as well. It's it's definitely a, a buyer's market. There's a Clinton Howell has a magnificent serpentine chest, great patina, great color, just beautiful thing. We talked about it. The price it may not be affordable to everyone in this room, but it is so much less expensive than it would have been, you know, 15, 20 years ago. I mean, it's tempting to get a warehouse and just put it all away. But again, that's not letting the furniture live. I think you will first walk onto a booth, see what catches your eye, then ask, how much is it? 
And then you'll know, and you'll, you can, like I do that all the time, and I say, there's no way I can afford that. Or, hmm, that's something I can think about. And so do the same thing, and that way you'll know. Go to the 77th Street flea market on the west side. I've bought some great things there. That's where I have someone who t sells things for me, too, actually. You might buy something that I'm selling. There, there really are opportunities, I mean, in New York in particular, everywhere. I mean, so one can begin collecting it on, on any level uh, in any of these, these flea markets or, or out in the countryside. You know, you just have to refine your eye. And the best, the best way to refine your eye is to just look at the very best first so you know what it, it's meant to look like. I think antiquities, too. Uh, ancient objects are quite undervalued. I mean, imagine this 2,500-year-old mirror. You could probably find one of these for $6,000. I mean, it's, I mean, you could also buy a Jasper Johns print for, for $100,000, right? I mean, so it, I mean, that's, I think the most expensive antiquity that ever sold at auction was maybe $30 million. I mean, it, compare that to the contemporary market, which is... You know, that's half of what a Gerhard Richter painting myself for. Although I'd love to have a Gerhard Richter painting. But I mean, but the, but the antiquities, I mean, they're, they're, they're quite, quite uh, I think, undervalued. It's hard as a collector not to see anything that you're interested in as being anything but undervalued. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, we're all boosters. But I, I do think it's true. If, if you look across the, the broad scope of antiques, um, you know, there are, it's you will not have to look far before you start to find objects that if you really think about it, you can't escape thinking that this thing is so wonderful and it's so enchanting and it has such a rich history behind it and it's in such fantastic condition and it connects me to so many past generations of people and the stories around it are, are so enriching and I can have this for you know, some relatively modest sum of money. I think about the the old, you know, 18th century aristocratic English families who invested so heavily in their decorative arts, their their furniture, their uh, their silver, their ceramics, the, the paintings they hung on the wall. You know, these objects represented in many cases huge fractions of their net worth, fifty percent, maybe more, and. Uh, I don't know about you, 50% of my net worth is is not in my decorative arts collection, um, but I but it, it should be. I mean, there's no reason for it not to be because that's a place where you can invest in things that just bring you pleasure on a daily basis that are that are are in an active way contributing to the the pleasure of your life. And how many areas can you think of where you can invest your money and get that kind of dividend? Um, so in, in that regard, it's, I would say pretty much everything is undervalued. <laughs> ben, can I just add something? I have much more admiration for someone who bought something that isn't very valuable in terms of actual dollars, but they can explain why it means something to them, you know, where they found it, what the experience was like acquiring it, why it brings them pleasure, than someone who has a name brand work of art on their wall that they just needed to have that name brand work of art. Now, I also have fr a friend who loves Andy Warhol. He genuinely loves Andy Warhol. He reads books on Andy Warhol. He's got it. He's figured it out. That's great, too. And I 
just think don't it's important not to equate high value with greatness greatness is all around you it doesn't have to be valuable and if you think of the uniqueness of some things i mean these weren't just stamped out these were the the template may have been cast and similar uh, to to others, right? But the image itself of the mythological story was all hand carved. Each mirror was all hand. It's not an addition of something. So this is this is the only one that exists like this. So there's a uniqueness to to some of these objects too that I think I, I'm not concerned about the monetary value of it, but that it makes it pretty pretty uh, uh, unusual, right? Um, any final questions? One of the things that uh, struck me listening um, to you all uh, was sort of your relationship with the concept of possession. Sort of, you know, Marcy was sort of talking about how you feel possession over these objects that go into the collections of other people. Um, and also feeling like you're in a long line of people who possess these objects and sort of caretaking. And I'm sort of curious is as you've continued to collect and sort of reflect on, you know, perhaps how your perception of possession is, is perhaps sort of different than what the average American or the average person might have, how that sort of, that concept has evolved to you. I think one key difference in uh, people who buy not just antiques, but who, who seek out high quality objects to have in their lives is that they're not thinking of these things as expendable, disposable and depreciating. Um, and I don't mean depreciating just in terms of financial value, but we think of these objects as things that grow in importance to us over time. And so possession, it, it, it's not really a commercial sort of possession, although strictly speaking, it is. <laughs> But that's not, at least to me, how it feels. The way that it feels is more of a custodian sort of relationship, as Tom described about his mirror. You know, someone else will own these things after I do, and that might be during my life or it might be after the end of my life. Um, but either way, it's uh, they, they, they move forward through time. Um, not that any object will last forever, but many of them will last for centuries or or millennia uh, and we're just little bumps along the road i just read a memoir of a friend of mine who grew up in very hard times and he in his memoir he writes about a painting that his roommate in a group home gave him because his roommate in a group home painted gave him and he says i still has it to this day that's the same exact feeling as i have for my mother's hawk's crystal and i think that no matter where you are in the socioeconomic ladder you have things that give you comfort on some level or another. That's where we're going to leave our live recording, but thanks for joining us for an hour at the Winter Show, even if you're doing it from your commute or your car or your shower or wherever you're listening, no judgment. I hope you enjoyed the panel and that maybe it'll help you catch the bug if you don't already have it. If you enjoyed listening, I'd be really grateful if you would leave a review and one of those coveted five-star ratings on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you're listening. Today's episode was edited and produced by Sammy Bellotti with social media and web support by Sarah Bellotta. Our digital media and editorial associate is Sierra Holt. Our music is by Trap Rabbit. 
and I'm Ben Miller. <laughs>